Well, um, good morning. Uh, greetings from the great state of Oklahoma, which is where I was last weekend, and uh, celebrating my mom's 80th birthday. And so that was that was a lot of fun to see the see the sibs again. So, um, not to backtrack too far, but um, we're going to have to kind of jump back into chapter six to kind of begin with. Um, and we know this because verse 1 of chapter 7 begins with the word or. So when you generally start a sentence with or, uh, there generally is a previous statement like an either or something like that that makes sense of the first statement that you've made. So imagine, here's, here's kind of an illustration. Imagine if I kind of paused for a few seconds. It's awkward. Um, and then, and then I said, or we could go to South Dakota. Okay, so let's try this again. Or we could go to South Dakota. Now, that doesn't make much sense. It's kind of a random thought, and you might think Bill needs a nap. It's kind of the conclusion you would make from that. But if I said something beforehand like, the Turner family is considering where to have a 2020 winter vacation, and we decided Hawaii or we could go to South Dakota. Now, that random statement makes more sense. Now, we would not go to South Dakota for a winter vacation, by the way. Um, we are Floridians, uh, even though uh, neither one of us originally from Florida. Um, but the reason the statement makes sense is because the addition of the first statement basically makes sense of the second statement with the or. So before we look at the or statement in verse one, we need to kind of jump back into chapter Six. So beginning in verses 14 and 15, Paul says, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. So Paul's reminding them as Christians that they are no longer relying on their own obedience to the law for their salvation, but they are relying on grace. Therefore, since you know, as he's saying, therefore sin will have no dominion over them because they are under grace and not only means that they are relying on grace to say, but it also means you offer your life as a slave to righteousness, which is, you know, something that is said in verses 18 and 19. Am I cutting in and out? Okay. <laughs> that sounded kind of strange. Do I need to move away from this mic? Okay. It's not me. Uh, okay. So verses 18 and 19, he says, and having been set free from sin, and have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness. Leading, and kind of to finish this verse, he says, leading to sanctification. And so according to verse 22, it also leads to eternal life. So what I'm saying here basically is as we kind of saw a few weeks ago, we rely on grace, no longer on law, because the law does not save. And so as we rely on grace, this is made possible through the death of Christ. As we see in verses 5 through 7, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. So... We, by trusting in grace and not law, offer ourselves in service to God, resulting in 
things like sanctification, things like eternal life, because we have died with Christ and therefore set free from sin. Okay, I hope that made sense. <laughs> and, and, and so basically, it is, it is this concept of, of dying and therefore being free from something that Paul carries over into chapter 7. So we're going to kind of look at that, but that's kind of some background to help us understand where he's coming from with chapter 7. So if you like outlines beforehand, what we're going to look at is, we're going to, our first point is, the power of the law can only be canceled by death. Point number two is going to be, dying to the law means we no longer trust in the law. Point number three is, dying to the law means you belong to someone else. Point number four is, dying to the law means you will produce the right kind of fruit. And point number five is, dying to the law means there's a big difference in how we serve. So we're going to kind of answer the question this morning of what does it mean to die to the law? And we're going to see a little bit later on why that's really an important thing to understand. Okay, so let's start with looking at the power of the law can only be canceled by death. So beginning in verse 1, Paul says, Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? Notice first that Paul says, or do you not know? What he is essentially doing, and this is kind of a brilliant argument that he's doing here, but what he's essentially doing is setting up his readers with two options. Either they can say, well, I don't know the law, and therefore they're kind of confessing their ignorance, or they literally have to say Paul's argument is true. That's a really brilliant way of saying things. They either have to say, yes, I know the law and what you're saying is true, Paul, or I'm ignorant. You know, and generally, most people don't like to confess their ignorance, so they're going to kind of lean towards, you know, hey, what Paul is saying is something at least to pay attention to, maybe to say is true. So, <clears throat> there is an argument here about what Paul meant by law. We need to kind of just lay this groundwork here. Some people think it was the Torah. You know, he says, you know, or do you not know those of, I appeal to those who know the law. He's talking maybe to Jewish believers or, or people who know the Torah or the Torah. But I think it leans more towards the other argument, and that is he's talking about kind of general law, you know, that, that each nation has a set of laws. And, and the reason I say that is because this illustration of marriage that's about to come up, this was in Jewish law, this was in the Torah, the things he's talking about, but it was also in Roman law. And so he's speaking to a Roman audience, he's probably appealing to Jews and Gentiles, and I think when he throws out law, he's kind of using a broad brush of the term law rather than just the just the Torah in this particular kind of situation. That being said, let's look at the illustration Paul uses to kind of back up the statement, the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Now it gets into this illustration of marriage, and so I'm going to ask the question, a couple of questions. How many of you are married? Okay, a lot of hands. Okay, now the second question is a little bit more tricky. And that is this, when do you stop being married? Okay, some people say die, death, that's good. Now, if you said when she burns my biscuits, that's a wrong answer. You know, or if he doesn't do this, just to make it even, you know, those are, those are wrong answers. And you'd be surprised there are some people who say something as silly as if he burns my biscuits. In fact, in Jesus' time, when he was addressing divorce, it was a real shocker because there were two rabbis at the time, Hillel and, and another guy, and uh, Hillel said something like, you know, only adultery. And the other rabbi said, if she burns your toast, you know, or something like that. Guess which one most of the Jewish men went with? 
if she burns your toast? You know, that was, a, that was a pretty popular argument back then. So let's, you know, kind of chuckle at the burns your biscuit things, but that was a legitimate thing. And I think throughout time, it's been kind of a legitimate thing. Now, if you pointed to your spouse and said, until they die, <laughs> that is a true answer, but your spouse better sleep with one eye open tonight. You know, when they die, I will no longer be married, you know, or something like that. No, the, 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 the positive and great and wonderful answer would be something like, until I die or death, I kind of heard over here, that's a good answer, or until we die together. Something, you know, corny like that. Um, so the point of that is this, that when a person dies, in this case it's the husband, then the wife is free from the law of marriage. So starting in verse 2, he says, For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. That word bound literally is, has the word in there, the Greek word for Lord. Kyrios. And it's basically the idea of lordship. And it kind of has to do with the conjugal bond, that, that as long as she is married to her husband, he is, is it's not PC today, but he is lord over her, or they have this lording bond between the two of them that is going on that she will be free from when he dies. And we understand this not only from biblical information, but as, as I said, Paul's using the broad term for law, we have in our laws today laws concerning marriage and divorce. So the unbeliever who never darkened the door of a church still knows a little bit about the rightness and wrongness of marriage and divorce and those types of things because it's in our secular law as well. And so a woman is bound to her husband if he dies. And then it goes on to say that she is released from the law of marriage when he dies. That word released is really a strong word which means kind of to render something completely ineffective. That's a really interesting term, that, that she, when it comes to the law of marriage, is no longer bound to that. She is released, and the idea is she is rendered ineffective concerning that law. And then in verse 3, Paul kind of really hammers home that the power of law can only be canceled by death because he says, accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. In other words, if a wife told her husband, you're dead to me, but he's literally not dead, and then she runs off with another man, she did not free herself from her husband, she just made herself an adulteress. And that word literally means one whose eyes are full of adultery. So the only way a, a wife is, is liberated from her husband and the only way a person is liberated from the power of the law is through a death. Second point, dying to the law means we no longer trust in the law. So verse 4 says, likewise, my brothers, you have also died to the law through the body of Christ. What does Paul mean by dying to the law? Because that's a tricky thing. I'm going to give kind of two things or two points to illustrate this. Number one, he does not mean, and here's, here's your $3 word, he does not mean antinomianism. Okay, the Greek word for law in the scriptures is namas, 
And so uh, anti-nomianism means basically anti-law. In fact, he entertains this conclusion in the next section of scripture we're going to look at, you know, down the, down the road, when he asks, what then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means, in verse 7. He even goes on to say that the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So Paul is not anti-law, nor is he giving permission to be anti-law. And this is really important for us because there, there are some hyper-grace people out there. Now, there's some hyper-law people out there, some legalists, but there are some hyper-grace people out there that use passages like Romans 7 to reject the law. I'm under grace. I'm no, one, no, no longer under law. Generally, that translates as I can do whatever I want within means because I'm under grace. What Paul basically means here is not antinomianism. The second thing is he means dying to the law in the sense of trusting in the law to save you. It doesn't say that specifically in this passage, but it can be derived from that because in verse 4 it says, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. It says we have died to the law through the death of Christ. So let's make a conclusion here. Why did Christ die? To save sinners. Christ died to save sinners. So the death of Christ, here's the logical connection here. So the death of Christ is connected to the issue of salvation. In fact, you could say here is Christ, you know, crucified, buried, and rose again, who says basically, trust in, obey me for the forgiveness of sins, and you can be right with God. That's essentially what Christ is saying. Here's Christ crucified, rose again, and he says, trust in me, obey me for the forgiveness of sins, and you can be right with God. And here's the law, let's say, that, that says, trust in or obey me, and you can be right with God. That's essentially kind of the two messages that are going on here. And Paul is saying that if you have put your trust in Christ for salvation, then the law is no longer an option for you as a way of salvation. That's very important for us who tend to kind of slip back into, where's the hoop I need to jump into in order to please my Savior? So when it comes to law, according to Romans 7, 1 through 6, we have been put to death towards it. The release is not, this is, this is a quote from Calvin, the release is not from the righteousness which is taught in the law, but from the rigid demands of the law and from the curse which follows from its demands. That's essentially what he's saying. And another way of pointing it out is I was looking, I found a really good quote and I wanted to use it and I couldn't find it, but I'm going to put it right here. And that is this, the law didn't die, we did. And that's a really good observation to make there that the law in and of itself is true and righteous and perfect and good, we are the ones who died to the law. So if you think in any way you are in right relationship with God because today is the 37,000th time you have consistently attended church, you're wrong. We love that you're here at church, but that is not the reason God smiles. In Christ, we have died to the law, so when the law says, trust in me, our response to that is this. 
when the law says trust in me, we are dead to the law. Point number three. Dying to the law means you belong to someone else. Verse 4 says, Likewise, my brothers, you have also died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. So I asked earlier if you were married. Some of you didn't raise your hands, probably because you're not married, you know, or you just weren't paying attention. Either or is possible there. But if we took Paul's illustration of marriage in the context of what he's talking about, then everybody, in a sense, is married. What do you mean by that, Bill? Well, here's what I mean by that. He says in verse 3, but if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. And so just like the woman whose husband dying frees her to marry or to be bound to another man, So verse 4 says, likewise, my brothers, you have also died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. Everyone on the planet is married or bound to one of two ideas. Either you are married to the idea that the law is your way to God and to salvation, or you are married to the idea that grace and what Jesus Christ offers to us as a gift of mercy is your way to God and to salvation. Either you are jumping through all the hoops, crossing all the T's, dotting all the I's, trying to perform all of the rituals and doing all the things that you think are the things that are required of you in order to be a Christian, or upright living for you is the result and not the cause of your salvation. So followers of option two, grace, understand that to be free from the law means, as Paul says, that they belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. And that word belong literally means to be. It's it's kind of the word for being, genomai in the Greek. It just means the word of being. And basically, the idea is, to use bad grammar here, you used to belong to that person, but now you be someone else's. And that's what it means. As Romans 6, 8 says, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Amen. Now, point number four. Dying to the law means you will produce the right kind of fruit. Verse five says, for if while... We were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. So what is the wrong kind of fruit? This statement here, fruit for death. And the idea is the the things that are produced is what fruit is. Things that are just naturally produced from our sinful passions. Because he says, our sinful passions aroused or woken up by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Now here's an illustration that doesn't really apply to today for the most part, but most of us remember landlines. Do you remember landlines? You know, those were the days when your phone was literally attached to your wall, you know, in your house or to some sort of object on the side of the street, you know, or, or something like that. You know, phones had to be attached to the wall. Now, 
let's say you're in your house. We're back in the days of landlines. Let's say that in your home, you walked away from a, a triumphant teaching moment when you led all of your children to appreciate the value of honesty. Man, you were waxing eloquently, you were using great illustrations, your kids were just on the edge of their beds, they were taking it all in, and they were like, yes, we understand what it means to be honest. But then the phone rings, and one of your children answered the phone, and pretty soon you hear in a childlike, screaming voice, Mom, Dad, it's Mrs. So-and-so, they want to talk to you. And you tell them, tell them I'm not home. Tell them I'm not home. And we have just blown those teaching moments to smithereens. And we did that because of the sinful passion of not wanting to be disturbed. Man, we justify things so easily. But, but in this case, it's a sinful passion of not wanting to be disturbed or not wanting to be put out. Or you don't understand how Mrs. So-and-so goes over and on and on and on and on on the phone or something like that. And how do we know in, in that moment that any of this was bad or destructive or wrong? Because there's this law. In our case, it's the Torah. And it says, do not bear false witness. In other words, don't lie. See, we would have we kind of said, well, you know, I just went with what I felt. And that was good because I feel good now and that sort of thing. But then there's this law. And this law says, don't lie. And our confused child with the phone in their hands kind of looking at you saying you're here tell them I'm not here but you're here tell them I'm not here but you're here tell them I'm not here and then they pick up the phone and, and they say I heard your parents voice just tell them I'll call them later you know or something like that but that law in that moment did not save us that law in that moment did not have the power to save us from the sinful passions that were stirring around in our system. It only made us aware of the fact that we messed up in the moment. In fact, probably knowing that, you know, we were doing, what we were doing is wrong, we, we looked at that law in the eye and basically just said, oh yeah? So we, we lived as if we were in the flesh and chiseled away at our child's trust and integrity basically bearing fruit for death. Small death. At the moment, it may seem like harmless death. But we bore fruit for death. So what is the right kind of fruit? Verse 4 says, Likewise, my brothers, you have also died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. So right kind of fruit is fruit for God. What is fruit for God? Probably, in the context, we're talking about the fruit of the Spirit that produces, you know, that daily kind of produces in a Christian's life. And we get that basically from verse 6 that says, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit. And so we're probably talking about the Spirit operating in our lives and when the Spirit operates in our lives, it produces a certain kind of fruit. And we get a really beautiful picture of what that fruit is, of course, in Galatians 5. So we take it back to our scenario of the landlines. 
and we take the call from Mrs. So-and-so, even though it might try our patience, even though it might be a horrible experience, even though Miss So-and-so is not worthy of our time, hypothetically, but a fruit of the Spirit is patience, and so we have patience. Or we love our children, or we love the truth, or we love our Lord, and so we take the call from Mrs. So-and-so, because a fruit of the Spirit is love. Or maybe we, we recognize it is a good thing or a kind thing to take the call, which goodness and kindness are two fruits of the Spirit. Or if none of these things apply, we've, goodness, this is good, eh, this is kind, eh, this is loving our kid, eh, this is, you know, this is patient, I don't want to be patient, you know, or something like that, and we've kind of kicked all the fruits to the curb, then if anything in our moment of selfishness, in not wanting to be disturbed, we exercise the spirit gift of self-control or the fruit of the spirit of self-control. And so we control ourselves. I really don't want to talk to Mrs. So-and-so, but this is the right thing to do. Self, go get the phone. And so we bear fruit for God. And the beautiful thing is in in this made-up illustration, the triumphant moment of the value of honesty stays. And you want honest children. You want honest children. So all of these things are possible because we have died with Christ, we belong to him, and he now lives through us. Galatians 2.20. Point number five. Dying to the law means there is a big difference in how we serve. Putting aside, excuse me, putting aside things like fruit for death versus fruit for God, which is a big issue, which should make us think seriously about these things. But the way we are to serve, either the Lord Jesus or the demands of the law, are equally kind of incredibly positive or incredibly negative. In verse 6, Paul says, But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So let's look at kind of the difference in these two ways to serve. How do we serve? It's very easy. Option number one is we serve together. Now, I don't mean together as a body of believers, although that's there. I'm very thankful for the body of Christ and how we serve together, help one another, pray for each other, encourage each other. All of those things are fantastic and wonderful. And uh, the will of God would not be accomplished if it weren't for the body. No doubt about that. But what I mean by together is, notice that it says that if we are released, made null and void from from the law, then we serve in the new way of the Spirit. What does that mean? Well, here are just some ideas. Letter number A, we are guided by the Spirit. In John 16, 13, Jesus says, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Number B, we are empowered by the Spirit. That's a silly thing I do, by the way. If you, I know B is not a number. I just do it with the students, and it just, it's bad habits now. Um, so, Number B, we are empowered by the Spirit. 
Ephesians 3, verses 14 through 16 says, For this reason I bow my knee to the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being. C, we are comforted by the Spirit. In John 14, one of the names Jesus calls the Spirit is the Helper. Parakaleo or paraclete is kind of the term, and it just means called alongside. It's a beautiful picture that the Spirit comes alongside of us and, and just comforts us and helps us through each day. And then the last thing is we are sealed by the Spirit. And I love this. Uh, I'd love to take this to the nth degree. We just did this with our students, but Ephesians 4.30 do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. That seal, I'll just go there. That seal means a mark of authenticity. It's a lot like if you go to a milk jug and you see that it's about three weeks past its due date or something like that, then you probably don't want to drink it. But if it fits in the guidelines of two weeks and it's still okay and you put it down your throat and all of a sudden just curds come into your system and you're like, what's going on? Because the mark does not... Te testifies against what this stuff actually is. Well, the Holy Spirit is kind of that mark of authenticity. And so the Holy Spirit is in our lives as a seal of, you know, it's like a seal on wax on a stamp that this came from the Master. And so that's the idea that the Holy Spirit is the mark on our lives that says that we belong and come from the Master. Now that is glorious as well as super intimidating. Because when we're in the flesh, it's like drinking curds. What? Are you kidding me? The stuff in the jug does not match the label. So, rabbit's in the cage. Okay. But we're sealed by the Holy Spirit. We are helped by the Holy Spirit. We are comforted by the Holy Spirit. We are empowered by the Holy Spirit. So, in other words, what we're talking about here is how do we serve? What I mean by together, it is us and the Spirit serving together. And then option number two is, or we serve alone. Because verse 6 says, we either serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. A person can either serve the Lord together with the help, guidance, comfort, and security of the Holy Spirit, or they will choose to serve the Lord in the old way of the written code. What is meant by that? Can you imagine, you, you just have in front of you a bunch of written rules. And the next sentence out of the person's la mouth is, good luck. Good luck with that. Folks, how are, how are we doing? How are we doing with anger? How are we doing with lust? How are we doing with patience? How are you doing with honesty? How are we doing with just the ten? You know, just the basic 10. Students, how are you doing with honoring and obeying your parents? Kids, how are we doing with that one? How, how are we doing with these things? We have a code in front of us of this is what it means to be perfect. This is what it means to please God. This is what it means to be God's. Good luck. And you will serve alone. And it is a recipe for failure. If you refuse to die with Christ and trust in him alone, the only thing you really have is excuses. Well, uh, I'll try harder. 
Well, I'll, I'll just do better next time. Well, uh, you know, at least I'm not as bad as so-and-so. I ain't never killed nobody. All we have are excuses. So there's a huge difference in dying to the law and therefore serving alongside with the Spirit or you're on our own. Now finally, Troy's catchphrase at the end of a sermon is what? Land the plane. He and I were joking about that, and I said, man, you've just, been, you've just been branded, you know, with that. And there was someone in the congregation that had a perfect one for me, and I need to get back with them. I think it was uh, Gail Hurley. So, Gail, if you remember that, what was it? Kill the bugs. <laughs> I used to be in pest control, so uh, now it's time to kill the bugs or something like that. But uh, we'll try to think of something a little more palatable since everyone leaves here and generally goes to lunch. But... Um, <laughs> I don't know, I might use that. Okay, it's time to kill the bugs. Okay, here we go. Some questions to consider. Okay, the question asked in verse 1 seems like a no-brainer. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? I mean, that's kind of, yeah, dead people don't have to pay taxes. People in comas still have to pay taxes. But generally, dead people don't have to pay taxes. You say, yes, I know that, I, but, but, but do you believe it? You know, it's what you do with the knowing that really proves a person believes something or not. And this is stuff that's calling us not just to know, but it's, it's calling us to believe this. So if the law's impossible demands on a person only cease when they die, then to some of us in this room, why haven't you died yet? Is your trust completely in the grace of God for the forgiveness of sins, or are you still hanging on to some tiny little vestige of self-righteousness that will never meet up to the law's demands for perfection anyway? I wrote a song one time to the tune of Deck the Halls that's called Following the Law. You know, it's oops, you sin, now just try harder. Following the law, the law, law, law. God will smile when you are smarter. Following the law, the law, law, law. O-B-E-D-I-E-N-C. No, no, it's uh, P-E-R-F-E, something like that. But anyway, um, but that's the idea. You know, we think we, following the law, the law, law, law. No, it's the thing that makes God smile. You say, yes, I'm a person of grace. Yes, I'm trusting in his grace. Yes, I'm doing this. But man, I'm so tired from jumping through these hoops or from trying this over and over again. I'm so tired of seeing my quiet time as a liability, as a have to. You know, why haven't you died? Why haven't you died? Are you trusting in his grace? Second question, if you are free from the law, Belonging to Christ, are you producing fruit for God? Or are you seeing the grace of God as some type of forgive-o-matic that, you know, gives you a green light to do whatever you want to do? You know, are, are, you, are you trusting in God in such a way that it is producing fruit for God in your life?
And then finally, the last question is this. If you're free from the law, do you, with the Spirit's help, seek to pursue the glory of God with all your might? If you are free from the law, and that's what he's talking about, this is what it means to be dead to the law. If you are dead to the law, if you are free from the law, do you, with the Spirit's help, seek to pursue the glory of God with all your might? So this morning is just kind of an opportunity for us to respond to some of those questions. So that's what it means to be dead to the law. And I pray and hope that our lives are pictures of the grace of God and not the perfection of the law. Let's pray together. God, we thank you. We do thank you for your law, Lord. Again, we are not seeing or believing in antinomianism here, Lord. We are not anti-law. Lord, as Paul points out, if it weren't for the law, we wouldn't know our sin. And Lord, what a horrible, horrendous thing to walk deeper and deeper into sin without knowing it for what it is. So we do thank you for your law revealing those things to us. Help us, Father, not to respond to that when when the law takes the switch from the bush and stingingly slaps us every so once in a while because of what we're doing. I pray that our reply, our response will be arms crossed, feet together, dead man in a coffin, and not, I'll do better, I'll try harder. Lord, may we just rely on your glorious grace in that moment to transform us by your spirit from the inside out. Lord, may we walk in the new way of the spirit and not in the old code of the law. However you spoke to us this morning, Lord, I pray that we will respond in obedience to you. And I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Our elders are gonna be here at the...